So we're going to be continuing our Gospel of John series this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 3, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. The title of today's message is called The Walking Dead. And some of you might be wondering a little bit about the title of that message, if you're in popular culture at all. So let me explain it a little bit. As I was preparing this week, I literally probably had hundreds of thoughts about how to handle the third chapter of, of the Gospel of John, especially here in the beginning. And in my opinion, the third chapter of John is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. There are so many angles, so many different truths to unpack here that I have dozens and dozens of things to say and I had all these thoughts and I was trying to figure out a way to organize them and set up this exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus. And as I was thinking about this, I was flipping through my favorites and reading the news and I saw a commercial pop up on my computer for this TV show called The Walking Dead. And bam, the message for today kind of began to take shape. But I had to admit, I struggled a little bit naming the message The Walking Dead because this show is a little bit provocative. And if you've never seen it, never heard of it, that's probably a good thing. I would not encourage anyone to actually go out and watch this show because it's, it's kind of gross, it's in the genre of horror, and it would probably give most people here nightmares. But stick with me a moment as I explain the premise of this show, and it's going to become clear why I chose this way to frame this conversation in John chapter 3. Essentially, the premise of this show is that a virus has swept over the entire planet. It's killed most people and turned them into these flesh-eating zombies. That's pretty gross, right? Those who are still alive who didn't get killed by the virus are in this constant state of survival. The zombies outnumber them at least a thousand to one. So they're always running away from them. They're always on the lookout for them. And any other remaining humans that are around them, many of them have also become evil. So not only are they fighting these, this zombie horde, but they're also fighting against many of the humans that have turned evil. Not only that, but the zombie virus has actually affected everybody. Even if it hasn't killed you and turned you into a zombie, when you die, you then become a zombie. Yes, this is a TV show, and hence the title, The Walking Dead. It doesn't refer to the zombies, but it refers to the people who are alive because this virus is living within them, waiting for them to get sick or die and transform them into this mindless killing machine. So a little bit of a, a disclaimer this morning that began my original disclaimer. Part of the challenge of preaching something from a source that is a little over 2,000 years old and it speaks to a culture that is foreign to us is making it relevant to our culture today. And maybe it's not as relevant to many people here because they probably never watched this program, never heard of this program, but maybe somebody on the podcast that will minister to them. So I'm taking that and I'm going to draw a parallel that's going to make sense a little bit more to the modern mind without watering it down or changing its meaning. So please don't think I'm using this example in any way as an endorsement or a stamp of approval of watching this show. But I'm helping those who have grown up watching some things make connections between this biblical truth and how we think today. And as I sat there thinking about the parallels between what I know of that show and the reality of the scripture that we're going to read, I realized that the central point of what Nicodemus was struggling with and why he came to Jesus, it came crystal clear to me. Nicodemus felt like a dead man and was, in fact, the walking dead when he came to meet Jesus. 
Keep that in mind as we read the scripture for this week. In John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Let's take a moment and just ask God's blessing and favor on our time of studying His Word this morning. Lord God, I just ask, Father, that you just take this most important scripture in the entire Bible, John chapter 3, and make it very, very clear to us. Where there has been confusion, let there be clarity. Where there has been a shadow over our minds that has not fully understood it, let us come to complete understanding of what you're trying to say through your holy word this morning. Father God, I ask for a supernatural revelation of your word to fall upon everyone here this morning and a passion to live it. Father God, I ask this in your name. Amen. Now, there are several things that Nicodem about Nicodemus coming to Jesus that I want to explore this morning. And one of the first thing is something I've already mentioned and made reference to is that Nicodemus is, in fact, the walking dead. He is a dead man walking. But why would I call a faithful priest, a pastor to his community, one of the most holy men alive at his, during his time, a dead man walking? Why would I refer to him that way? Well, there's several reasons why this is true. And all of it has to do with trusting in the wrong things to make him pleasing to God. The first thing he was trusting in is he was trusting in his heritage. Like all good Hebrew priests of his day, Nicodemus was a direct descendant of Abraham, then a direct descendant of Isaac, then a direct descendant of Jacob, then born into the family line of Levi. He could quote his entire lineage all the way back to Abraham from memory. That's how seriously they took their heritage then. How many people here could say they were born into Christianity. You were just born into a Christian home. It's all you've ever known. There are a few people here. How many people have you known that use that kind of an excuse that I was born into Christianity? I never had to come to Jesus because it was all that I had. And how many people have you met that have made horrible decisions in their life that have led to their ruin or the ruin to those around them? And when you bring up the subject of Jesus, that they must be born again, that they must come to a, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and go after and follow hard after him, they automatically point back to say, well, you know, I, I got baptized when I was two months old and, and we go to church occasionally every Easter or, or Christmas. You know, you know, I'm a churchgoer. 
They always point back to something like that, but they can never point back to a time in their life when they chose to follow hard after Jesus. They make the same mistake that Nicodemus is making here. They're trusting in a heritage and perhaps the faith of their parents to carry them through their life. If a person has only their heritage to point to as a way of entering heaven someday, they're the walking dead. The second thing that Nicodemus is trusting in is he is trusting in the law. You remember this number for me, 613. 613. That's how many laws are in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and especially Deuteronomy. Being a priest, Nicodemus has all 613 laws memorized. He could quote you chapter and verse, in the Torah, where those laws were located, he knew the moral law, the dietary law, the civil law, the ceremonial law, all by heart. Not only that, but he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees knew them by heart and then added onto them. And for every law, they added at least two to six different stipulations to each law to ensure there was no wiggle room for grace for those who violated the law. And for Decades, Nicodemus has taught these laws. He's taught these rules. He's taught these stipulations. He's taught these precepts. He's done his duties as a priest exactly how he was supposed to do them, and he enforced the law. Just like the Apostle Paul, Nicodemus could say he has been legalistically faultless his entire life. If you... If you made the requirements into the law as a check sheet and held it up to Nicodemus's life, you could check every single box and he would pass that test. But as the Apostle Paul found, trusting and following the law for your salvation makes you a dead man walking. Because Romans 3.20 says, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight through the works of the law. Through the law we become conscious of our sin. The law doesn't make one righteous. It only informs you when you do wrong. And since Nicodemus was fo focused only in following on the law, he was trusted in his performance. And he did all these ceremonies, performed all the sacrifices, avoided everything and everyone that would cause him to sin. He lived his legalistic life in such a way that any one of us would have looked at him and said, there goes a good man. He is a godly man. And in the eyes of the religious world at his time, he is an example you would point to, to for someone with whom God is pleased. But with all that, Nicodemus felt there was something missing. Even though he's doing well following the law and being good, he still feels empty. Even though he's born into the priesthood, even though he has studied and memorized large portions of the Torah, He's trusting and following the law, and he is obedient to it. He has followed every rule prescribed by the law of Moses and his religious sect called the Pharisees. Even though Nicodemus has followed everything his religion has told him requires to make him pleasing to God, he feels there's still something out there he hasn't grabbed onto yet. There's still something missing from his spiritual life. Then he meets Jesus. Jesus is the polar opposite of what Nicodemus would expect of a man that God would use. 
In Nicodemus's, the Pharisees in the first century religious world's eyes, Jesus is untrained. He has no spiritual pedigree to speak of. Jesus is uneducated compared to Nicodemus. No famous rabbi has trained him. In our way of thinking, Jesus never would have even made it into middle school. Jesus wasn't born to a noble family in Jerusalem. Jesus is a nobody. And you have to go all the way back in his lineage to David to find a famous person that existed within his family. Not only that, but he's a nobody from a hick town in Galilee called Nazareth, which was on the wrong side of the socioeconomic tracks. And finally, and perhaps most damaging in the eyes of his culture and in his religion of the time, Jesus was rumored to be the son of fornication. You remember that was one of the accusations the Pharisees made against him. Everyone in Nazareth knew what happened during Mary's engagement to Joseph. And that stigma followed Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. And it was even, as I said, one of the chief accusations the Pharisees would level against him later in life. All this is on Nicodemus' mind as he goes to meet with Jesus. And he desperately needs and he wants answers of how God is using Jesus despite all these imagined shortcomings in his head. And I think one of the reasons Nicodemus is puzzled is because God isn't using him in that way despite everything he has going for him. Despite being this faithful and obedient priest, God isn't using him, but God seems to be using Jesus. This uneducated layperson with a questionable background is performing incredible miracles that haven't been seen in Israel for over 400 years. Nicodemus's confusion is the second point that we need to see today, is that Nicodemus didn't realize the problem that made him the walking dead. And for all of his education, with all the scriptural memorization that he had, with the study, lifelong study of the Torah, he missed the central point about humanity. Back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, I refer to this chapter a lot because it's a basis for our whole understanding of the world that we lived in and why it's so messed up. Whenever you read the newspaper or turn on the TV news and, and you see all the evil in the world, all the bad in the world, you can point right back to this chapter in the Bible to understand where it came from. You see, God creates humanity in Adam and Eve. He creates humanity in him, His image. God is a triune being, therefore we are a triune being. It means you and I exist as three separate parts. The first and most important part that God created was our spirit. And it's that part of our existence that's the most God-like. It's a part of our nature that sets us above every life form of this planet. It's a part of our nature that gives us our higher reasoning ability, our creative ability, and even our moral consciousness. When God created Adam from the dust of this earth, it said he breathed into him the breath of life. And in the book of Job 32.8, it says, but it is a spirit in a person, that breath of the Almighty that gives us understanding. God then created a body from the things of this earth for the spirit to live in. And when the spirit and body come together, it forms our soul. 
And the soul is that union between the body and the spirit. And God made us this way because we needed to be part of this earth to be able to interact with everything in creation. He made our bodies to be the temple of the spirit that he blew into us. And he places Adam and Eve in this pristine, innocent earth. It was a physical paradise and it only had one rule. Don't eat from the knowledge of the tree in good and evil. Why doesn't God want us to have that knowledge? Why did God forbid them that one thing? It just seems like, why? Why can't we know that? Our Father gives us that prohibition because He doesn't create humanity with the ability to possess and handle that kind of information. We weren't wired for it. Let me illustrate a little bit what I mean here. Anybody ever seen the movie Apollo 13? or heard about the Apollo 13 space mission. It's about the mission to the moon, where this part of the spacecraft blew off. And they, um, it's, it's about the drama of trying to get them back to Earth so the astronauts don't die. And being a, a bit of a tech and science nerd, I was amazed at what they called a computer on their spacecraft. I mean, the thing was so basic, it was so huge that it, it's, it, it, I struggle with even calling it a computer compared to our technology today. How many people have a, a wristwatch on that's digital? Anybody have a digital wristwatch on? Your digital wristwatch has more computing power and memory than that computer that got people to the moon has. Literally. If you have a smartphone, that smartphone has over 20,000 times the memory and processing power of the computer that helped Neil Armstrong take one small step for a man and one giant leap for mankind. I'm just amazed at technology. Now, imagine taking that very primitive Apollo guidance computer that got them to the moon and try to make it load even the easiest or smallest computer operating system or program in existence today. Anybody play solitaire on a computer? Simple game, right? You think that would melt that computer, trying to play just that simple game. Anybody remember that, that Atari game called Pong oh, yeah. back in the day? You remember how we can be so enthralled with a little dial and go boop, 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 boop. And we'd sit there and play that thing for hours. The guidance computer in the Apollo capsule would melt trying to play just that little bitty game. I use this as an example to show that that is what happened when Adam and Eve bit the apple. Essentially, they shorted out their spirit. That information overwhelmed that spiritual operating system, an operating system that was created to be completely dependent upon God to provide the power to operate and to function. Adam and Eve and everyone who followed them became the walking dead. They were infected with this virus we called sin that wreaked havoc on us because we were not designed to process that information that we call evil. And all of us spiritually died at that point. And since all of humanity is a triune being, death came also to our bodies and to our souls. Adam and Eve and all their descendants carry this virus and were forever struck down with an illness that was constantly waiting to pounce and to kill them. 
And God didn't design us to process that evil because he loves us with an everlasting and an overwhelming love. And he never wanted us to experience and know what evil will do to a person or to a people. Therefore, Nicodemus is a dead man walking. And he doesn't even realize this fact. But it doesn't just apply to this man. Nicodemus is representative of anyone who has not come to Jesus Christ as, and made him Lord and Savior. Jesus doesn't just leave Nicodemus in his dead state, but he shows them the solution. Backing up a little bit, Nicodemus comes at night. I know there's a lot of pastors who, who preach on that and say that's a bad thing, that, that Nicodemus was trying to, to be a secret disciple, that Nicodemus was, was trying to hide his faith, that, that he wasn't being sincere and all that. But I, I, I don't think that was, that was the case. I think it was just more practical. He wanted Jesus one-on-one -on -one for a very deep theological discussion. You imagine having that with a group of people surrounding you? saying, Jesus, can you explain this to me a little bit better? It, it probably wouldn't have worked out very well. You imagine him asking Jesus a question and Peter walking up and saying, hey, hey, you don't talk to Jesus until you talk to me. you got to go through me. I am the rock that his church is built on, after all. James and John probably would have called down thunder for him, not even knowing the answer already. Thomas would have doubted his motives. Andrew would have asked his brother Peter what he thinks. Nathaniel would have split every hair of the discussion to such fine points, the main point would have been lost. Judas would probably charge admission. So you can see what would have happened if he would have came to Jesus in broad daylight. Nicodemus needs to meet one-on-one -on -one with Jesus, and that's an important lesson for us that we learn from this meeting. And that is, you cannot ride somebody's coattails to Jesus. Just because your mama prayed doesn't mean you're saved. Just because your daddy was on the church board or a pastor, it doesn't guarantee you a spot in the eternal kingdom. Just because your spouse is religious, it doesn't mean that God has to also take you when they take him or her to heaven. You need to make time to meet with Jesus. You need to meet with him alone. And you need to do some business with him. And this isn't just a decision that gives you a ticket to heaven. It's a lifetime commitment to follow hard after the Son of God. Jesus himself said, count the cost, then take up a cross and follow me. The second point of this meeting is that this meeting will not go the way you think. It didn't with Nicodemus. He starts out with a typical flowery greeting that you see in the Middle East. In the Middle East, when you sit down with these people and they start talking Arabic, it takes them 10 minutes to say hello. I mean, it's this very formal, very flowery. They call down the blessings of God upon every, everything. And it just it takes a long time. But behind all the flattery, behind all the formality that Nicodemus was starting with here, there is a heart that desires to have what Jesus seems to have. And that is an intimacy with God and the power and peace of God ruling his heart. And Jesus sees inside Nicodemus. He sees through all that stuff that Nicodemus brings with him and immediately addresses his deepest need. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. 
Let me paraphrase what he is saying here. He's saying, Nicodemus, you're a dead man walking, and with all of your Bible study, with all of your effort, with all your training, you never realize the basic truth about you and all of humanity. You are the walking dead. And Jesus summed up the problem like this. He said, flesh gives birth to flesh. Your pedigrees mean nothing. Your heritage means nothing. All of your, all of your fleshly pursuits in life, all of your, even if what you call it spiritual pursuits in life means nothing. The spirit gives birth to spirit. If you want a spiritual rec- uh, resurrection, you need a spirit to come in and blow and bring that back to life. You should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. Jesus is telling Nicodemus and all of us here this morning, or anybody listening by podcast, no one can experience God's peace unless they die to themselves. No one can feel God's abiding presence unless they surrender. No one can know God's power unless they willingly empty themselves of everything they've trusted with up until this point. And it wasn't so much dying to ourselves. It was about releasing everything to Jesus and letting him live through us. You see, biblically and theologically, we were never truly alive to begin with. Even when the the doctor smacked us on the behind and we started to cry, we never were truly alive because we've been dragging a third of our created nature around with us that was lifeless. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, the spirit in humanity died. And it affected our soul and it affected our flesh. But in John chapter 3, we learn through faith in Jesus, humanity's spirit can be resurrected. It can be born again. You see, John chap- or Genesis chapter 3 and John chapter 3 are the two bookends of the salvation story. And finally, Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from, or where it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. Let me bring this home for us this morning. Everyone under the sound of my voice feels some yearning inside them. You have no idea where it's coming from, why it's there, or what it's trying to do. All you know is it's causing a struggle to rise up within you. And that's the Holy Spirit calling you to surrender your life to Jesus and be born again. And this isn't just a flash decision. It's not just an emotional decision. Again, Jesus tells us, pick, count the cost, pick up your cross, and follow me. And if you are willing to do that, then Jesus will indeed breathe life into your dead spirit, and you will become born again.